Hello, and we are back for season 3B of Ballot to Talk About, which will take us all the way to the end of this year. And I know from looking ahead to our calendars and our planning churn, we've got quite a few bumper elections in store before then, um, including the one that we're going to be talking about today, next weekend's Swedish general election. But it's Sunday, the 4th of September, 2022, and joining me, as always, from the other side of the globe is my co-host, Chern. Chern, how was your summer? Well, it's so good to be back, isn't it? It's been, it, it, we're back to our regular routine. Summer was pretty good. Obviously, I went over to the UK, um, and you've also been on holiday as well. So we're back to reality. Um, it's been raining a lot here. I'm expecting the days to get shorter at your end. But other than that, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm glad to be talking more often. How about you, Sam? Yeah, no, it's it's been very nice. And it is nice to be back um, to regular programming. And I'm glad to say for once that it's also raining quite a bit here because we went through such a long period of it not that I think we're all glad to glad to see normal service resuming yeah, in terms of the weather as well. Well, normal service resuming, it didn't. It felt like this summer compared to last summer, for example, there was a lot more politics that went on underneath the surface. Well, certainly helped by events that would take place on Monday this week in the United Kingdom. But Sam, before this, before we kick into all things Sweden, we cannot ignore a pair of special elections that took place in the United States. So why don't you briefly describe? What which two special elections we would like to briefly discuss? Yeah, so we had two special elections take place in the midst of all of the primaries ahead of this year's midterm elections. One in New York 19th, which was to replace Democrat Antonio Delgado, who resigned to become the lieutenant governor. And the single house seat in Alaska, which is to replace the late Don Young, who'd served for 49 years as the Republican representative in Alaska. And the reason we're going to talk about it is because in both cases, the Democrats won a district which voted for Donald Trump, particularly in an environment ahead of a midterms that are expected to be um, a favourable environment for the Republicans. So it was two quite noticeable um, primary results for the Democrats. And... So in New York's 19th, Pat Ryan beat former governor candidate Mark Molinaro, who lost to Andrew Cuomo back in 2018. And then in Alaska, we had Mary Peltola, who happens to become the first Alaskan native to to take a seat in Congress, beat former vice presidential candidate and former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, in what was Alaska's first House um, ranked choice voting election. So it was interesting in quite a, quite a number of counts. Um, and both of them were by quite narrow margins, Churn. So firstly, your reactions to these results. And secondly, what implications, if any, do you think these might have for the uh, upcoming midterms? Well, I think let's break each race down separately. So let's take a look at the New York 19th, which was Anthony Delgado. He resigned to become the lieutenant governor of New York. So essentially, the number two to Governor Kathy Hochul. He won with 51.1% to Mark Molinaro's 48.7%. This is a district that is the start of upstate New York. It was won by Obama, then Donald Trump in 2016, and then Joe Biden. So he has actually voted for the winning presidential candidate in 
in, in, in each of these in the last three elections. So the Democrats holding on seem to be against the run of play because very much we often see in the first president's midterms, this was evidence in 2010, this was evidence in 1994, that the president's party does very badly. And we all expected it to be the case, particularly as you said, that Trump won this district. Uh, this was a Trump won uh, district in 2016. So I think that's uh, the what propelled Pat Ryan's victory seems to be a relatively higher turnout amongst Democratic voters compared to Republican voters in a special election. Now, that to me reflects the changing demographics of the voter coalitions of both the Democratic and Republican Party. We know, Sam, that the Democrats are becoming much more competitive in suburban areas, you know, more highly educated areas, more college educated areas. And these areas tend to go out and vote, have a high fancy to vote. Whereas Republicans are doing very much better in lower amongst lower propensity working class voters. So actually, yes, this is good news for the Democrats, and it particularly helps Nancy Pelosi right now over the next couple of months, because we saw Charlie Crist had resigned, reducing the margin of the Democrats in the House, certainly keeping both the New York 19 and gaining Alaska is good news for managing a narrow chamber with divergent interests. But at the same time, in the grand scheme of things, this special election in New York probably means nothing. Why? Because redistricting is taking place and the next midterm elections in 2022 will take place under new lines that are much more favorable to the Democratic Party. Let's take a look at Alaska at large, which I think was the biggest shock to me personally. That was a ranked choice voting system. We had three candidates, Mary Portola, Sarah Palin, and Nick Bergich III. And the Bergich family is highly influential in politics in Alaska, particularly democratic politics. What I think was really unique about this was that if Sarah Palin and Nick Bergich's were reversed, i.e. Nick Bergich had reached the second round, I suspect that Nick Bergich would probably be the new representative for Alaska's at-large congressional district. This special election, to me, really spoke about the unpopularity of Sarah Palin, where in a recent Alaska poll, found that two-thirds of Alaskans disapproved of Sarah Palin, which is numbers that are really difficult to overcome for any candidate itself. And Mary Portola itself did very good in a constituency that John Young used to do very good, which is, of course, the... Bush vote or the native Alaskan vote. She's, of course, the native woman herself. I'll give you an example. In the 38th House District, Mary Bartolo was 70% of the vote there, which is an unprecedented figure. It's, of course, the area which she represented before. But I think given that Anchorage itself and the suburbs areas are quite red, our overperformance amongst Bush voters could hold the key to whether she's successful in holding the seat in November. So I think, although Alaska had its quirks, I think what we cannot ignore in both races is a democratic overperformance. So, but this nonetheless, given the tight margins in the House and Senate, the Democrats could be competitive, but it's still going to be a tough fight in trying to maintain control of the House and Senate. So let's not try and get too bullish about these results. There's still a lot more hard work ahead. But at this stage, it may suggest that the wipeout in November might not be as so big as what could have been expected. What do you think, sir? No, I think I think you're absolutely right with 
everything you just said. Um, I think we should treat these results with caution if we're using them to predict what's going to happen in November, particularly because it's also a special election, which midterms tend to have less turnout than presidential elections. Well, special elections tend to have less turnout even than that. So this is, a, I think, it, to a certain extent, it's going to be a very different electorate to what is even turning out in those constituencies uh, in a few months' time. So that's the first thing. And also, just to further illustrate the point you made about Sarah Palin, I think just look at the transfers in this election, because as I said, it was the first ranked choice voting election for this seat in Alaska. Well, in the first round, Peltola finished first, Sarah Palin narrowly finished second ahead of Begic. And when Begic's votes were transferred, 50% went to Sarah Palin, which, bear in mind, she is the other Republican candidate, is unbelievably low. 30% went to Mary Peltola, the Democrat, and 20% decided that they disliked Sarah Palin so much that they wouldn't preference anybody. So to, for 50% of the Republican votes to either not go anywhere or leak to the other party, I think is startling in in an environment that is as partisan as the United States seems to be at the moment, which I think speaks volumes about Sarah Palin as a candidate. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about this when we cover the midterms in greater depth ahead of um, them taking place this November. But I think candidate choice is a huge theme of these midterms because I think it's going to make or break some of the results we're going to be covering, and particularly on the Senate side, but it seems also from these special elections on the House side as well. And I think the Democrats found Mary Patola the ideal candidate. Her pitch was something on fish and families, which I think describes Alaskan politics, really. So, and we have to acknowledge that Alaska is unique compared to the lower 48. I think that's Alaska. And it's really interesting that Mary Patola and Sarah Pin actually have a very good relationship between each other. So they were when she was governor, Mary Portola was a state representative. And actually, they took a selfie together at the count itself. And they they'd often taught Sarah Palin often talked about how much she valued Mary Portola. And she didn't give him a nickname, unlike Nick Baggage, who was negative Nick all throughout when she was fighting. I think it's because they knew that with only three candidates, Mary Portola Democrat, is we would see two. Republicans fighting for that one spot in that race. And so therefore, what that meant is that they had to cannibalize each other's vote to ensure that they got ahead of the other for that second place. They knew who their targeted was. And I think that was what killed it for both candidates in this. That means the Republicans moving forward probably had to play a lot smarter with the rules about how you get across ranked choice voting. Because I think this is a new system. There's a lot of chaos surrounding it. So they have to understand the intra-party fighting, in this case, did really badly for the transfers that played out and enabled Paltola to win, isn't it, Sam? Absolutely. Um, and obviously, we'll be talking about the US to a much larger extent ahead of November's midterms. But nonetheless... But before we go, would you like to hear two interesting facts I found about Alaska? Oh, go ahead. Did you know with them gaining Alaska, the Democrats' percentage of land represented increased by 104%. So the number of land represented by a Democratic 
congressman or woman has doubled since they won the Alaska at large, a special congressional district. That's how big Alaska is, or how focused the Democrats are on cities. And secondly, take a guess, Sam, who was the last Democrat to win a statewide election in Alaska? I've been seeing this stat thrown about so frequently. It was definitely in the early 2000s, or maybe 2008. It was 2008. It was a man in the 2008 Alaska Senate race who beat Republican Ted Stevens. That man's name was Mark Baggage, the uncle of Nick Baggage <laughs> III. So in the end, there's still some kind of uh, polar interesting thing that has happened in Alaska and only in Alaska. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll find some further stories like that as we as we preview the, the midterms coming up in November, which will absolutely be a fascinating watch. But nonetheless, as, as we said at the beginning, Chern, the main focus of um, this week's podcast is going to be next weekend's Swedish general election, where Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson is leading her Social Democrats party into the election, hoping to win a third term. Facing opposition, I think it's safe to say, from quite a, a few corners. There is, as we'll come to talk about, the main opposition being led by the moderate party, but also the insurgent Swedish Democrats far-right party as well. So it's it's all in all going to make for a very fascinating series of results. And today we will be looking at whether, as the title song suggests, Sweden will be taking a chance on Magdalena Andersson, giving her a full term as Prime Minister next weekend, or whether they'll be turning in another direction. So we'll be dissecting the main players and talking about the campaign itself. But, Chern, I think we should start with the governing Social Democrats. Well, technically, although it's called the Social Democrats, the full name is the Social Democratic Workers' Party. And it is the oldest and largest party in Sweden. It has been long dominant in Swedish politics. And I can tell you two amazing stats that from the mid-1930s, the Social Democrats won more than 40% of the vote. And from 1932 to 1976, so what we're looking at there, say 44 years, the party was continuously in office, which was a fan. I mean, that's just beggar's belief, really, in a democratic election. In fact, since September 1914, so for more than 100 years, the Social Democrats have come first in every single election held. Now, that doesn't mean that they form government in every single election, but still, I think that's really interesting. And they're all poised, according to the opinion polls, for extending that remarkable record. The Social Democrats have been in power since 2014, and as we said at the top of the program, are currently seeking a third term under Madeleine Anderson, who took over from Stefan Lofren. Anderson is Sweden's first female prime minister, and she was previously finance minister under Lofren, who led the party for, um, in government from 2014 to 2021. Now, quick recall, Sam, if you recall that she came to power in rather dramatic circumstances, as the vote of confidence against her failed by one vote, if you recall. She was therefore paving the way for a, a swearing-in ceremony. However, the, the Reichstag then had to pass the budget, which failed to pass, and the budget that was crafted by the right and a populist far-right passed. This prompted the Green Party to pull out of the existing coalition and caused her resignation several hours after she made history. Nonetheless, several days later, she was duly elected as head of a single-party minority government, 
and which is the smallest, only controlling 100 out of 349 seats since 1979. And so it's quite a remarkable start to Anderson's tenure. And since then, you could argue it's been quite a roller coaster in terms of world events and crises that she's had to deal with. So, Sam, let's just wind back a little bit and ask a more wide-ranging question to kick us off this little bit of a discussion. What has been the secret to the Social Democrats' remarkable success? Because, like I said, 44 years in one stretch of government, first for over 100 years in elections, is phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, from everything that I was reading about this, I think one of the keys to the success of the Swedish Social Democrats has been that unlike in other countries where social democratic parties have either recently been struggling or have never really had that historic grip on the country, it relies on the fact that generally Swedish politics tends to be um, more centrist or at least more left-wing on social issues, economic issues, um, public welfare, but also the social democratic party have been able to maintain strong connections with the trade unions in Sweden, which even to this day when membership has been falling, still constitutes um, between 10 and 20% of the entire Swedish population. And maintaining that strong relationship, not just financially, but politically as well, has made them a strong campaign machine. And also, de facto means that you have Social Democratic Party members, in inverted commas, all over the country, in every um, industry, and that is a strong campaign tool and is a strong base from which to enter into an election campaign. And I think that's one of the main reasons that they've been able to remain so strong whilst the right have just been fluctuating all over the place, entering alliances, dissolving alliances, changing names, changing leaders, changing ideological positions. The Social Democrats have maintained a very high base. Well, yes, I think that's largely right. They still have a support of the white Swift society. However, um, we should note that the ill fortunes of some of the other traditional social democratic parties have also affected the Swedish social democrats. I mean, at one point, as you said, as I mentioned earlier, they did poll in 40%. But in the last election in 2018, they polled 28.3%, which is the lowest vote since 1908. And so, and in fact, the Social Democrats have lost seats in every single election since 2006, apart from 2014, when they did go into government, they did gain one seat, but it's been a more net loss over the last 20 years than the last over that time period. So they're not immune to the challenges, but potentially they're starting at a much higher base relative to so many other Social Democratic parties, which is why they've still been able to mm. maintain their grip on the party and yeah i mean just just to further illustrate that as well i mean i made the point about trade unions but you can also see in opinion polls that that might also be instrumental to their recent decline because i said they had a strong grip on the unions well just after the 2018 election um they did a, a demographics poll on um electoral preference and the Social Democrats and Swedish Democrats, the far-right party, basically had a virtual tie amongst union members with 31% supports each. So it does suggest that those grips that they had on the sectors of society do seem to be falling away, which, on the one hand, 
stronger illustrates my point because it suggests that they had relied on that previously, which is why they'd been successful, but also suggests that that losing that grip is going to be instrumental to their decline as well. And, you know, Sam, we often talk about that Madeleine Anderson's less than a year in the job. We, you know, those honeymoon periods we traditionally associated with new leadership. I think it's telling that when Loughran took kind of a risk in resigning, he didn't have to. He was not forced out by any scandal whatsoever. But I think he did it solely to secure his legacy. But yet, even for new leader, the party is polling about the same or potentially one or two percentage point higher. Does illustrate wider that the social democrats need to think more wide about how best to attract back some of their lost union voters to the Swedish Democrats, um, which is in a traditional left-right political spectrum, the center-left and the far-right are polar parts. But as we have often seen in many other countries, we talk about the working class, the populist right wing can have a very good attraction amongst these group of voters. And we'll be talking about the Swedish Democrats a little bit later. One point that I would like to point out is that one secret that I identified was how they govern. Now, Sweden, being a proportional representation system, meant that only under exceptional, unless it's exceptional circumstances, the Social Democrats usually govern as a minority government, or in even or less likely in as a coalition. Now, what that has meant is that they, I think, it's because they view themselves as a centre-left option. They're giving an option on the far left with the communists. And what, what is then known as, what is now known as the centre party in Sweden. When they are in coalition, they bring them formally in. But when in minority, they can play off both sides, leaning on the communists with some support and some policies, or shifting to the centre and attracting their voters, you know, the Farmers League voters, which is what the party was then called between the 30s and the 70s, to pass more centrist leading policies. And I think having that two-way bet on the, having a party on the left flank and a party on the, on its right flank has meant that we have prevented the disproportionate slippage of votes on, on, on towards one side than the other. So to me, that is one of the secrets of the social democratic success. Do you buy that theory, Sam? Oh, 100%. And I think them being able to carve out um, a lane that almost can can be backed up by various different factions in Sweden has meant that even and and this no more so has this been illustrated than in the last four years since the last general election that even in a time when your coalition partners are walking away over policy changes over directions you want to take they're still in government and they've still been able to survive in government for the entire four years because their policies can appeal to different factions, which means they can coalition build on individual issues with different groups. I mean, I one interesting thing I thought about how they've governed is also to do with the fact that they haven't maintained that ideological purity that you sometimes see in other left-wing parties. And they've been able to demonstrate some practical flexibility. I mean, two examples of this is one of the reasons the Loughran coalition began to break down was because his government decided to pursue um, an abolition of rent control and also an, an abolition of the very top rate of tax, both of which the other left-wing parties in the government completely rejected. And both don't naturally seem to be 
centre-left policies, but nonetheless they were they were pursued and we saw, we, we know exactly what happened afterwards in terms of the, the government. But then even more recently than that, Magdalena Anderson's dramatic U-turn on Swedish NATO membership, which I'm sure we're going to come to talk about a bit later on. But both of those, I think, have suggested that the 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 party and the current leadership are not necessarily fixed in what they want to do and will be prepared to adapt to suit whatever the geopolitical or economic needs are going to be at the time. Yes, and I think that's a wider um, Stephen Lofgren's legacy has kind of been a continuation of how traditional social democrats have governed, which is, you know, when needed, practical and particularly for tight parliament, which is what we saw over the last four years, it necessitates forming different coalitions on different types of issues in order to get some governing done rather than just being stuck in a paralysis all the second time or all the time, really. And I think that's one of his legacies is that not only did he rebuild the party to a certain extent through some troubled times and narrow parliaments, he had the ability as his, as a probably as a former head of a, the metal workers union of, you know, of, of doing what is necessary to keep the social Democrats in power. Critics will argue that, you know, such wheeling and dealing, not only with one party, but with a variety of different parties as and when it suited them, could potentially have diluted the party's message, making voters kind of unsure of what the Stephen Lofgren stands for. But nonetheless, I think, you know, if we judge him on the metric of ensuring that social democrats remain in power and still have a reasonable shot at, ex- at getting a third term, I think those are still, you know, he's leaving a party so far in a relatively better state than when he found it in opposition. So mm. I think... Now, that's kind of been Lofgren's governing style. And I just wonder if Magdalene Anderson has maintained some of that pragmatism when it comes to governing. Because don't forget, she was the finance minister, you know, traditionally one of the most important government jobs throughout Stefan Lofgren's tenure. And so she therefore had been close to the action to see how he wield and deal, particularly over the last four years. So I expect that, you know, if she was in a successful position to form a coalition of some sort, and we'll discuss the potential options when discussing the centre-right later on, that could be the key to continuing her success. Do you agree? Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the big questions of this election campaign, ahead of discussing the issues of the campaign, the different manifesto commitments, is the eventual government formation, because whatever the result of this election, it's looking like the parties are going to be stacked quite close together. And even if the Social Democrats win, they're going to be considerably far away from any kind of um, sizable minority or or a majority as well. So it's important to understand where the state of the relationship is between the Social Democrats and their potential allies, because Without their support, the Social Democrats are not going to be able to govern, and they barely scraped through to this election. So I'm curious, Chern, where, what is the state of that relationship? And do we expect that if the Social Democrats need them, that the other left-wing parties are going to be on side after next weekend's election? I think what we're going to see in this election is, and I think you're referring to both the Greens and the Left Party, who are you know, the Greens are the environmentalist party. The left party is was what the communists used to be. I think from the left, from the Green Party's perspective, for both parties' perspective, is that 
they know that for the centre-right numbers to work, they are probably going to need the far-right Swedish Democrats in the picture of some kind, be it a confidence in supply or more formally in a coalition government. I suspect that the loathing of the far-right or the absolute unwillingness for the left-wing parties to want the far-right there will mean that they rather uneasily support a social democratic-led Magdalene Anderson government because despite the fact that she was a part of the government, as you said, that abolished the top rate of tax, they got rid of rent control because the alternative is far worse for them. So I think it's going to be a difficult governing point because they know that if the numbers are tight, they have enormous leverage over Magdalene mm. Anderson and they can exploit it. So I think that it will I mean, be that's a- that's effectively what has happened over the last 12 months, exactly. isn't it? That, that's the only reason the Greens... That semi on side right now is because they didn't want to support a budget that was also supported by the Swedish Democrats. I think you could see lots of abstaining in the Swedish parliament because don't forget in Sweden it's, it's kind of a negative parliamentarianism system so you actually need to get the majority of the parliament to vote against the prime minister nominee rather than vote you know rather than you know Magdalene Anderson actually technically if you compare votes cast lost both her votes to become prime minister it's only because the votes against fell below the crucial 175, which is the which is the number you need in the majority, is why she remained prime minister. So I think we could see more such things continue in the short term, really, as it's better for the devil you know than the devil you really hate, really, in my opinion. So I think that's the relationship between her and the left-wing parties. And she will continue to pick and try and grasp the centre party and the liberals, which I think will be the key in this election, to, if not task, to support, you know, support the government, but abstain in any government formation. I think the position of the Liberals in particular will be key in this election, as we'll discuss a little bit later on. But Sam, just sticking to uh, the last four years in a tight parliament where which, where she has leaned both to the left, far left and to the centre, what issues have dominated this election campaign? And in particular, this is the first Nordic and Eastern European election recovered since Ukraine invasion. So really the region that has been the most affected since uh, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How has, what has been the impact of this war on this election? Um, I mean, as for the biggest issues of the campaign, I think a lot of them are quite similar to issues we're going to see all over the globe um, for elections for the foreseeable future, which are the fallout from the Ukrainian invasion and particularly the impact of that on energy prices, but also just general issues around the cost of living that Sweden are suffering in the same way that we're having problems here in the UK and I'm sure are going to have a huge impact also on the the US midterms that we're going to cover in November. Um, Interestingly enough, I mean, Clearly, one of the big changes that has happened since the invasion of Ukraine in Sweden is that there has been a dramatic U-turn and a dramatic shift in support for um, NATO membership and defence policy. And in fact, last week, Sweden announced its latest um, contribution to the Ukrainian military effort. Um, and we were seeing a big shift in um, public support. I mean, here's an example. 2015, opposition to NATO membership was at 56%. In March of this year, which was in the immediate aftermath of the Ukrainian invasion, 27%. So the the opposition to NATO membership has halved. 
But given all of that, I wouldn't go as far to say that NATO membership is a major ballot issue in this election. It might prove to be a government formation issue because famously the other left-wing parties are not particularly on board with this decision from the Social Democratic government. But in terms of being a ballot issue, I'd say energy prices are way more significant and also migration and refugee policy, which has been put onto the agenda by the Swedish Democrats, which is a lingering impact from 2018 where they began to talk about it quite extensively. But this time around, I think all parties are having to set out their position on refugees and immigration, including the Social Democratic Party, who Magdalena Anderson has made quite a few speeches over the course of this campaign, which have hardened the Social Democratic stance on migration, saying things like she would expect all um, migrants to Sweden to be able to speak Swedish. Um, and in terms of the uh, visa requirements as well, um, I've thought they've been interesting talking points and I think shows how seriously the other parties are taking the Swedish Democrats and, and the contribution they're making to um, the, the debate. Well, I think one of the playbooks of the far right, the Swedish Democrats, is to produce, to make statements or to produce literature that can grab the attention of people, which, you know, you know, those headline grabbing opportunities. And I think it's best described in a poster by Tobias Anderson, who is the justice spokesperson of the Swedish Democrats. And it's a picture of a train with the Swedish Democrats logo on it and with Afghan refugees inside. And the message was, welcome to the repatriation train. You have a one-way ticket, next stop Kabul. Now that is classic far-right playbook, you know, rely, preying on people's fears and immigration which I think is more potent in Sweden for two reasons. Firstly, Sweden, as we know, is one of the Nordic countries with a generous social security um, social security system. And there's fears, of course, that migrant immigrants, you know, will exploit that, um, that generosity. And this is particularly important because one of Stefan Lofren's legacies as prime minister was when the migrant crisis was at its height in 2015, Sweden per capita took in the most number of migrants in Europe, which I find very interesting. So, and Magdalena Anderson is part, was a key part of that government. So she cannot run away from that decision as much as she can. But what she can do is to try and solve some of the integration and crime issues that have started to bubble up in Sweden since that time. So, for example... She has uh, pushed for 50,000 new police officers by 2032. Um, this is and she explicitly stated that the reason why she wants 50,000 new police officers was due to an increase in gang violence, gang crimes, and shootings. And it's quite stark, the figures in Sweden, actually. I've got a statistic here in Sweden. It's, the European average is 1.6 deaths for every million from guns. In Sweden, it's four in every million. So it's more than double the average European rate, which I find it surprising considering some of the other countries in Europe. And in terms of rhetoric, she's definitely hardened up the rhetoric. So she's in one of the speeches I found, Sam, she said that clearly that one of the policies that she will have going forward is to not have any Somali towns in Sweden itself. And I think that's a direct response to the threat 
of what the far right has been posing. And it actually caused a Swedish Somali politician, Soda Hussein Morgay, to accuse the party of becoming xenophobic. And obviously Morgay subsequently expressed no confidence in Anderson and left the party. So it shows to me the traditional difficulty for a center-left party in trying to keep its working class base, which is obviously the key to its success, as we discussed in union membership, but at the same time, appealing to the socially liberal voters in the cities who they will need as well. Yeah, I mean, finally, before we start talking about the opposition, I just wanted to talk briefly about Magdalena Anderson as a person, because one thing that I think has been clear from just looking at the Social Democratic campaign is that she has higher approval ratings than the party, and because of that, the party have put her front and centre in their campaign materials, on the campaign trail. I mean, most of the pictures you see of the Social Democratic campaign either are of her face or people wearing T-shirts that say her name, not even the Social Democratic Party name. So my, I guess my question for you is, and I know I didn't put this down before, but I'll see what you think about it, is, is she popular? Or does she just happen to be more popular than the party, so they're going to have to go with it? Well, that's a very good question. You know, this idea of a pers- the party leader being more popular than the party kind of describes Ruth Davidson's approach as leading the Scottish Conservatives, isn't it? It's that she can reach that traditional voter that the Scottish Conservatives could not. And this was best seen in the 2016 Scottish Parliament elections, where it was Ruth Davidson, really. Um, plus, face plus, I kind of imagine it's a, kind of the same thing in Sweden. I think that's a really interesting question. I think that she has, in the several months that she's been prime minister, she has been willing to take big policy shifts. For example, you know, in defense policy, you know, she's recently announced a big energy package as well. I think she herself is very much in that honeymoon phase. I mean, it's been less than a year since she's become prime minister as well. And given the history-making nature of this appointment, I think it's just natural that the party, that she's going to be more popular than the party. But some of the party's world, I genuinely am not surprised by. Because, yes, she's historically making, but we've covered so many elections over the last couple of weeks, Sam, where the governing party has been unpopular. You know, I mean, they've been thrown out of office over the last, you know, couple of elections that we have certainly covered. And I think that you cannot run away from those fundamentals, which is why the party's performance is so poor. She has tried, I think, to model campaigns similar to uh, Metik Fredriksson in Denmark, which is center-left economics, but with a strong anti-immigrant posture. I think the question is, though, is that third terms are difficult for any government, particularly one that has been there for eight years. This is going to be a really tough election, and which is why I think the polls are so close. I think without her, is Stefan Lofren was still leading? I think the Social Democrats would be in big trouble. She's at least given them a fighting chance. So, I mean, I think it's now a good time to talk about the other pretenders to the Swedish government throne, which are being held really by the moderate party and also with a big um, surge from the Swedish Democrats, the far-right party we've referenced a few times. So... Just to give a brief rundown as well, um, the Moderate Party was formerly known as the Conservative Party and from the 1979 election have been the leading centre-right opposition party to the Social Democrats in Sweden. 
the big turning point, I think, for right-wing politics in Sweden was in the early um, 2000s when they decided to form the Centre-Right Alliance Group um, as an attempt to dislodge the Social Democrats from power, which they successfully managed to do in 2006 with an alliance that involved the Christian Democrats, the Centre Party, the Liberals, and of course, the Moderate Party as well. And they governed right up until 2014, when Stefan Lovren's Social Democrats got back into power. So I think there's a few questions here. Um, one that keeps, um, that I think is important to answer for listeners who maybe don't know too much about Swedish politics is that alliance that governed between 2006 to 2014, is, is it still present? Is that what they're presenting themselves as going into this election? No, the alliance is broken down completely. I think most, in, and that broke down really in 2018, when both the centre party led by Annie Luth and the Liberals decided to back, abstain in the vote of confidence against Stefan Lofren, allowing him to get his second term. And the Liberals have supported the government until 2021, and the Centre Party continue to support the government. And I suspect the Centre Party will, will support Social Democratic government if it, together with the Social Democrats, the Left and the Greens, and the Centre Party, they are the numbers of the majority in the parliament itself. I think what why it broke down was that the architect of the alliance, which was the former Prime Minister, Frederick Renfield, really moved the moderate party to the more to the centre of politics itself, which meant that it was attractive for the Liberals and the centre party to join forces with it. However, under the new opposition leader, Ulf Christensen, he has moved the party back to its traditional right and has been much more willing to work with the far-right social uh, Swedish Democrats, actually. Now, that has meant that that has led to the breakdown alliance, and I suspect one of the reasons why that's those, those two parties have moved to the centre-left. Now, what is key, though, is that, as I said earlier, I think the centre party about the Social Democrats is what the Liberals would do. The Liberals have will likely, based on opinion polls, be gaining more votes, which is, I suspect, some of the moderate party voters upset at the centre, at them moving towards the right, and them wanting to maintain some kind of leverage. So uh, wanting to maintain so some kind of centre-centre-right, therefore moving to the Liberals, but being not so explicit in terms of supporting the Swedish Democrats, how they turn to, to the right or the left, could decide this election. But Sam, how do you, what other reasons do you, have you found out that potentially could explain the breakdown of the alliance and why potentially, let's say against Denmark, that these parties are much more flexible in terms of which way they support? Because in Denmark, if you recall, there are two clear blocks, the red block and the blue block, and parties do not deviate in terms of who they count on their support for them. I mean, I think this alliance formed in Sweden was much more of a recent phenomenon than Denmark, which explains one of the reasons why I think it's broken down much sooner. And it also came from a place of um, a desperation to remove the Social Democrats from office rather than any kind of um, ideological a position. It, it didn't come from a place of we agree on so much, therefore we're going to go into government. It's we all agree that we don't want the Social Democrats to continue in government, so we may as well present ourselves together and, and remove them, which they successfully did, um, it's worth saying. But I think one of the more recent reasons that it's broken down has been, as you said, 
over the role of the Swedish Democrats in Swedish politics, because one thing that distinguishes the former members of the alliance from each other is whether or not they are open to the idea of the Swedish Democrats being involved in a centre-right government in Sweden, because the Christian Democrats, for example, have been quite forthcoming about their desire to work with the Swedish Democrats. They met with them not too long after the 2018 election and have been openly discussing cooperating since then. The moderates seem to be more reserved about their position, but have been steering more towards allowing them into government. Whereas, as you said, the Centre Party and Liberals are pretty clear that they don't want to cooperate with the Swedish Democrats. And I think that is one thing that's driven a wedge between these parties, not just a disagreement on whether they will work with them, but a disagreement on whether they should actively engage with the policy areas that the Swedish Democrats want the right to engage with. And I think how parties have chosen to deal with that new presence in the political system has made the difference between whether this alliance was able to continue. That's a perennial challenge, isn't it, for how do you do with the far right? And we we traditionally saw this as a problem for the centre-left as it lost voters to the far right, but it clearly is now a problem for the centre-right as it decides that it's a big enough block and a big enough stumbling block and an opportunity for them to get into government if they are willing to swallow it. And we're seeing various centre-right parties sometimes struggle with answering that question. And speaking of centre-right parties, let's refocus back on the moderate party. Sam, let's cut to the chase. This is a government which has been in power for eight years. It's seeking its third term. So how on earth has a moderate party lost ground compared to the last election when, while polls suggest that the Social Democrats could remain or do even better than the last election because they're not expected to go backwards, isn't it? So what on earth has happened? I mean, I think they've just been disadvantaged by a more crowded political space because the Swedish Democrats are poised to gain um, vote and the Social Democrats are poised to not really change. So the only realistic place that this vote is coming from in huge swathes is from the moderate party. And I think that's one thing that has been a bit of a bit of a problem. And I think also the the choice of Ulf Christensen to move further right has alienated some of the more centrist voters that used to be around the moderate party. And um, that, combined with the general leakage they've had to the far right, has just meant that their vote is just not as stable as it was even four years ago, because they're sort of alienating all sorts of positions, because they're not the far right. So people who have far right sympathies will probably just vote for the Swedish Democrats. And because they're being quite cosy to the far right, centrist people don't want to be around them either and are either going straight back to the social democrats or they're going to the liberal center party etc and i think that's one of the key reasons and i mean i think because of sweden's history there is a sizable chunk of the swedish population who view any embrace of the swedish democrats to be disturbing their long-standing historic record on human rights neutrality and um, welcoming refugees and immigrants. And I think ultimately when you signal that you're prepared to embrace those kind of positions, you have a ceiling of support in a country like Sweden um, if you're not the party itself. I think that's a very good way of putting it. But in that case, if the leader has brought the party 
you know, very much to the right and potentially alienate the centre and its centre coalition partners. Why has Ulf Christensen been given another chance to lead it, in your opinion? Because in 2018, he got the worst results since 2002 in that election. He's going to get even worse results this time around. And it's clearly a strategy that is continuing to bleed votes. So why stick with him? I mean, for now, it's too little too late, I feel, for anything. <laughs> but why did they not stick the knife in like other leaders would have probably suffered that fate? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think he benefited from the fact that he had not been leader for very long prior to the 2018 election. I think he was elected leader back in 2017, just a year prior, similar timeline to Magdalena Anderson, really. And for the same reason, I would expect that if um, the right, the centre-right, end up being in a better position to form a government, I don't expect Magdalena Anderson to be thrown to the wayside as leader of the Social Democrats immediately. And I think Ulf Christensen had the same problem. And, I, and I, to be honest, I think if the results do turn out to be like what the opinion polls suggest, I don't think Ulf Christensen will be leader of the moderate party for too much longer than this. Um, and for one of the other reasons, I think he was swept up in such a protracted attempt to form a government after the 2018 election that because he was mooted as a potential prime minister in that period that they didn't move quickly to get rid of him despite the historic lows because they were potentially going to be in a situation where he was going to be leading the government. Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating for Sweden is that, you know, that with the Ukraine issue, you know, the defence, law and order would traditionally benefit a centre-right party, you know, one that prides itself on law and order and defence. And of course, the Social Democrats historically have been more sceptical on NATO membership compared to the centre-right. I find it fascinating that in the immediate aftermath of the war, it was the Social Democrats that got more of a boost. And this underlying theme of security is still being repeated in this election. I've got a great quote here by the defence minister who called the Swedish Democrats a security risk. And I think that's really preying on the whole change landscape of Ukraine over the last um, six months or so. So yes, this is an election that technically immigration, defense, law and order is being fought on the center-right's terms, but I just think it's fascinating to me. I'm not sure, but and do you agree with this, Sam, that it seems to be an election that this main center-right party is just not doing so well? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, is that sometimes, even if you're one of the historic long-standing pillars of um, Swedish politics, which to a certain extent the moderate party are, when the debate is fought on terms of a third party, the Swedish Democrats, the two big um, sides of this debate are going to be the Swedish Democrats and the Social Democrats, not you. So when the, when the debate is centred around an issue that you don't really have a defining opinion on, then you're not you're just not going to be part of the part of the conversation i think in in the election and that has been one of the problems for the for the moderate party well time is fast running out but nonetheless it's going to be a tight election with potentially them relying on unconventional alliances and um that have not been formed before but sam any predictions for what do you dare make one of what we could expect after the election and you cannot say that the Social Democrats will come first because I think that's pretty much a given, isn't it? So please go on. Will you be there to begin something more than just that? Um, 
I think my broad prediction is I think the current governing arrangement will hold after this election because I think what's going to happen is the Social Democrats will come first, slightly increased on their 2018 performance. Um, it's looking like the left party are going to slightly better their 2018 performance. And even though the Greens are going to fall and the Swedish Democrats are clearly going to, to make gains, I think you therefore have a situation where you still don't have a stable enough way for the right to govern in Sweden. And I think what the last year has proven is that even in a situation where the Social Democrats have nowhere near a majority and still govern as a minority, that that situation, if the Social Democrats actually gain seats, is something that can quite easily be maintained. So that is my prediction. Um, but, but nevertheless, I think just as a caveat to that is, if the Social Democrats lose seats and they go in the direction of the right, I could see the historic situation arising where we do have... Um, an agreement made between the moderates and the far right to govern in Sweden. But my main prediction is that the Social Democrats do slightly better and the current governing situation um, holds. I think this is what's going to happen. I agree that the Social Democrats, I think the Greens getting over the 4% threshold is absolutely key here. If it does, I can see the governing arrangement happening and therefore that will be Probably a Social Democrats, Greens government, left party, I think will poll roughly the same. They will remain outside of government. Centre party, and I suspect the Liberals, more likely than not, will tend towards the Social Democrats, in my opinion, than the centre-right. But here's the big prediction I'm going to make. I think the moderate party will fall to third place. And because of that, I think it therefore becomes unimaginable for a even on the centre-right, the second biggest party, or in the in the case, the third biggest party in the parliament to produce the prime minister. And that, I think, is the biggest reason why I suspect Mandelie Anderson will remain prime minister. Yeah, because a, so, a Swedish Democrat prime minister is just untenable. No, and I don't think there are just the numbers to do that. And so because there are no other options, I think Mandelie Anderson will remain prime minister because of that reason. And it's only because of the weakness of the moderate party, in my opinion. Do you buy that? Well, we're going to test it out next week, but does, do you buy that potential avenue, potentially, of uh, how it could turn out? Yeah, I mean, no, that makes perfect sense to me. But I think Katrin Jakobsdeltier has proven <laughs> elsewhere in Scandinavia that anything is possible um, for you remaining as prime minister. But um, yeah, there's a lot to play for next Sunday, and it'll be fascinating to see how it all pans out. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be looking at the new UK Prime Minister, who we'll find out tomorrow. And we'll be looking at his or her cabinet and talking about what it might mean for the next few years of British politics. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>